pleasure of finishing a really short little spurt, a little series we've done called Counterculture. And what we've done for three weeks is taken this trip into what does it mean to live uh, Christian life and how is it that we can live clearly in a way that counters the prevailing culture uh, that often rides against the values that God has laid out in Scripture. And so uh, in week one, we talked about silence and solitude in a really loud world. And then uh, last week, somebody remind me, what did we talk about? Failure. See, I failed to remember. Um, We talked about failure in a culture all about winning. We said, what would it look like to try and fail? What does obedience look like, even if you're not guaranteed victory? And what would that be like for us to engage in? Today, we are going to discuss community. Uh, Community is actually countercultural. Next week, we'll start a brand new series. We'll launch into a new psalm. But for this week, we're going to spend one week really, kind of really deeply saying, what does it mean to live in community? And how is that at odds with the culture around us? There's a real challenge in Scripture to live a unified life with other believers. And the question I think we are asking today is, why don't we enjoy the community that we're supposed to enjoy? The community laid out in the early church where people shared their stuff and got along and took care of each other's needs and brought in the sick. And and on some level, in in spits and starts, we do that. But there's something in us that goes, I still feel isolated at times. I still feel alone at times. I still feel on the outside And what is that? Architecture uh, gives us a good hint as to how our culture got the way it is. Uh, I would argue that our culture is the most individualistic culture in the history of the planet. And architecture, if if you're a student of these things, would be a really neat indicator. If you look at a house built, anybody live in a house built like pre-1940? There's a couple pre-1940 houses. If you live in a house, we used to, in a house built early in the 20th century, usually the layout of the house is they put the living room in the front of the house. The main uh, area that, that you would entertain and be with other people is in the front. And then in the back of the house, you would have the kitchen and other utilitarian things, but, but you always have the living room in the front. If you live in a newer house, especially anything in the last 20 or 30 years, what you'll find is your living room is almost always in the back of your house towards your back door. And the front of the house is sort of a formal area or a, a sort of an entrance way that you would engage somebody, but not where you bring friends. That's in the back of the house. And what happened is in the middle of the 20th century in America, we went through this post-war boom that was uh, joined by the interstate highway system, which gave people greater mobility. And so as people began to move out of the cities and into greater mobility, what happened is we got in our own cars We began to be isolated, and then the very architecture of our home shifted, and we went from a country that celebrated uh, things publicly. So when you have a party in your front room is your entertaining room, when the party spills out of the house, where does it spill? Into the front yard, into the streets with your neighbors. You'll also notice in those old neighborhoods, you'll often find sidewalks with a direct sidewalk straight up to the front door from the main sidewalk. And in newer neighborhoods, the only way to get to the front door is the sidewalk off the driveway. Which is to say, unless you're parking in my driveway, you're not welcome here. As we age through the interstate highway system and the post-war suburban boom, what happened is life turned inward. And as uh, as our wealth got greater, people found out they actually wanted more private space. And so we moved out further from people. We had bigger yards and private space. And so in a newer house, your house is actually uh, engineered to spill out into your backyard, your private space. Your entertaining happens in the back of your house so that when you have too many people, it spills out into a a fenced area or a a secluded area that that can't be touched on by the greater community. 
And it's a subtle shift, but if you look at it, it's everywhere that we are trending more and more and more towards private, individualistic, isolated lives. James uh, chapter 3, verse 18. We'll read one one verse from uh, chapter 3, and then it goes straight into chapter 4. It says, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they come from your desires that you battle, that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think... Do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. And when you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? There's a ton in there, and we could spend the next six weeks just taking that passage apart. What we're looking at today is the importance of community and the countercultural importance of community as it relates to our culture that we live in today. So scholars would say that in uh, verse 18 of chapter 3, there's this word righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And scholars would tell you that there's this thing called a lexical range with any word. Um, If you say angry, that can mean, you know, I'm, I'm angry that my order got messed up at a Panera. You know, that wasn't supposed to have mayonnaise. I'm kind of angry about that. And then there's angry. Um, of a whole nother level, right? Anger, there's a lexical range where anger can kind of fall. Same is true of this word righteousness. And what uh, this was biblically is there was being either right with God or right with others. There was kind of like, you could mean this or you could mean that. And you have to kind of look at the context to see what the writer was intending for this word. James, interestingly, uh, scholars have all agreed, means both. So James is saying, uh, when he says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness, he's saying right living with God and right living with others. So he who sows in peace with others and with God will find right living with both. This is a farming metaphor. I'm not a farmer. But basically it's saying righteousness, if it is to be grown, needs a seed to be sown, and that seed is peacemaking. Peacemaking is a really interesting term, and we don't have time to get into it. What I will say is this. You cannot make peace in an isolation booth. There is no peace to be made on an island. If you are not living in community with other people, if you are not engaging in community with other people, you will have a whole lot less mess, yes. But there is no peace to be made in isolation. True deep living between you and God and you and others cannot be found apart from deep involvement in a peaceable community. So your life will not change drastic, drastically. Your, your life will not change apart from community, is what this is saying. That apart from community, you cannot be a peacemaker because you can't be a peacemaker by yourself. 
And so there's this invitation implied even in this text that says you have to be in with others. You have to start there. Relationship with God, relationship with others. Why is this countercultural? Well, as I've said, we live in an intensely individualistic society. Our postmodern world would convince us that you are what you make of yourself. Even more, uh, I would say post-postmodernism is you you now are what you consume. You are the compilation of the brands that represent you. Are you an Apple person or an Android person? There's a little slice of who I am in that. What's that logo on your shirt? What's the logo on my shirt? Oh, it's interesting. Psychologists do these studies with, uh, neuroscientists do studies, and they look at uh, just flashing a tenth of a second picture on a screen of somebody wearing the different baseball hat. If you like the Tigers and somebody else likes the Indians, they can flash a picture of a guy in an Indian's hat, and your amygdala shoots off your, your fear center of your brain. And it's subconscious. You can't recognize that the person is wearing the wrong hat, and yet they're not part of my tribe. And something in us gets it. That's different than me. And so the things we wear, the places we live, the stuff we drive, all that stuff becomes our identity in such a way that when I see somebody who's like me, from skin color to shirt size to whatever, the science would say there's something in us that goes, that's what, I just want to be with people like me. And so we begin to identify not with what we believe, but by what we consume. And all of those exterior things are the places that we begin to meet and interact with others. The church is moving to a consumerist model too. Not this church, but the church. Oftentimes you'll run into a consumption at church where you ask someone, where do you go to church and why? And the answer is this place because of uh, this product that I like. Whether it be the preacher or the type of music or the, the lessons at Sunday school or the, it's often there's a product there that I really enjoy. And if that product went away, I'd probably go somewhere else. This is the great tragedy of of knowing when you leave a place, there weren't thousands of people at our church in Texas there for me, but we would get calls and people would say, you know what, you're leaving, we think we'll leave too. We'll go somewhere else. And I'd say, you were never part of that place to begin with, were you? Because church has become a consumptive place as well, where we choose our our flavor of church and we say, ah, we'll start there. That's not community. Covenant is countercultural even in and of itself in that sense. We come right out and say it. We exist to know Jesus and make him known. That's what we're here to do. You want to be a part of that? You want to know Jesus? Great start. You want to make him known? Awesome. If either of those two things are not on your radar, it's probably not going to be a great place for you. Because I'm going to get up here 40 times a year and say, hey, it's time to to know Jesus better. And when we finish, I'm not going to say, now do you know him? Cool. I'm going to say there's a challenge to go and, and make him known now. And you can only hear that so many times before you get uncomfortable and say, you know what, let's go somewhere where, where it's easier. And that's a beautiful thing about covenant. We gather, we share, we bless. You sit in the chairs as ministers, not as consumers. And that's the clear understanding that we have is, is we are all equal ministers of the gospel. And so showing up here is your way to be encouraged and equipped to go and do the ministry in the community. Community is actually our strategy here for reaching the city. Every church has a strategy. Not many know it or would be able to articulate it. But ours is very clearly community. We come here to join and encourage and equip, to do life together, to share life deeply, 
And our strategy of how we know Jesus and make him known is then to go out and in community make things happen. Whether that's in your organic community life that you already live, it's a, a covenant community group, whatever that looks like, that's, that's what we do. Which is radically countercultural even to begin with. But we do it because we know this, life-transforming community results in community-transforming lives. Life-transforming community results in community-transforming lives. Church is not a place for consumption. It was intended to be a place of community. And so regardless of postmodern thought, what we know is that community shapes us. Social scientists agree with this. You're a product of your family and your culture and your primary community. You're a product of your relationships and not your rationality. Your beliefs are a product of your relationships and not your reasoning. And so community shapes us in these radical ways. We're in these communal societies. Back in in biblical times, when you read through the way that punishment was doled out, and you see what a biblical community really looked like, one of the things that really makes us uncomfortable as, as modern 21st century humans is that crime or sin often leads to a whole family being punished. You ever run across that in scripture and you just go, ah, something about that doesn't make me feel okay. So this guy goes and does that and his whole family gets punished? Until recent modernity, the wide belief was that a product, you were a product of your family and your culture. And so your behavior is a direct reflection of your family and your culture. And therefore, they are partly responsible for your life. And so when you see punishment in, in the Old Testament, you go, why, why is this person being, being thrown under the bus for something they didn't do? They would say they're inextricable things. And if we do this right, that's us. That you and I are inextricably tied in community. That we would join our lives together in such a way that, that I would say I'm responsible for you as much as I can be. And you can be responsible for me in the same way. Consider the testimony at a funeral. I hope you haven't been to one lately. But if you have, you, you go to a, a memorial service and someone will stand up and they begin to, to speak about their loved one that's gone. What I've never heard in all the funerals I've been to, officiated, I've never heard someone stand up and tearfully give a list of facts and achievements about the person who they've lost. They get together and every single person talks about the relational impact that that person had made. And you hear things like, he formed me or she changed me. Or I'll never be the same. Which is to say, we are not what we make ourselves to be. We are a product of all of those with influence. This is why normal, individualistic, modern American life is so dangerous and why we should all be on the lookout all the time. Because increasingly, we live without community. We would say, in a cranky, get-off-my-lawn sort of way, we'd say, yeah, the relativist. Why is relativism on the rise? People just make up their own rules and they say, well, that's just the way I do it, so it's good. It's on the rise because as a society, we leave it up to each other to decide what we believe. We say to each his own, and we're good with it. And as the church, we're, oh, well, you know, say la vie. Rather than displaying something different. In a sense, by rejecting a local community, you implicitly buy into a global community. And then we wonder where people got these ideas. How did the church, so many churches, believe things that are so counter to what runs in Scripture? Why? Because somewhere along the history of church XYZ, they decided to say, you know what, these are good people and they believe these things and they have no rooting in any 
any divine message. But if they believe it and they're decent people, it's good enough for us. And then the whole community starts to take a turn and you look up and 20 years later you go, I don't even recognize that's not Christianity to me. If your experience of church is a Sunday experience, the church is not your community. If your experience of church is a Sunday experience, the church is not your community. You can't admonish and serve one another, as Scripture tells us to do. We can't confess to another or sacrifice for each other. We can't be devoted in prayer together in an hour and 20 minutes on a Sunday morning. We can't hold all things in common because this is just a moment in time where we come together to be encouraged and equipped and sent out. And culture would say, so? Why would I want to be admonished by somebody? Like, why would I set myself up to another community person and let them tell me where my life isn't quite right? I don't want to do that. Why? I don't want to confess my sins to another human being. I don't have to go through anybody else. I got me and God, we're in this together. I don't need anyone else to do it with me. And yet even that runs counter to what the New Testament, to what the book of Acts, to what Scripture says this life is to be about. And yet, because for most of us, that actually sounds more comfortable, we're okay with it, and we shrink back. And we don't say, no, 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 community is harder than that, and we're going to do it together whether it feels great at first or not. We go, you know what, yeah, I don't really want to confess to you either. So this coffee thing we were going to do where we meet up and kind of go through life together, let's just do it once a month and talk sports. And that'd be easier for both of us. That's not community. Where is the breakdown? Why community fails is in the text here. It says, starting in verses 2 and 3, it says, You want and you covet. You kill, quarrel, and fight. The Greek word for this wanting is uh, hedone, where we get the word hedonism, seeking one's own pleasure. Basically, Scripture says the reason that community breaks down, the reason that this whole thing kind of collapses in and on itself, is, is I seek my own pleasure first. Hedone. I'm in it for me and for what I can get out of it. And when I'm in it for me and what I can get out of it, then everything else goes off the table. When your comfort and your control and your convenience are more important than anyone else's, then as a result, your needs are more important than anyone else's needs. It almost sounds too simple to say it, but because I seek to please myself and you seek to please yourself, because I prioritize my comfort and my convenience and you prioritize your comfort and your convenience in a hundred little ways every day, This is the reason for the breakdown of community and the fabric of community as a whole. That's what scripture is laying out. That is a simple mindset that I exist for me. I am for me. That means that I can't simultaneously be for you. And if I can't be for you and you won't be for me, then we're really in this alone. And we may sit next to each other on Sunday or we may see each other at the grocery store and smile because I know your name and I think I remember your wife's name, but I'm not totally sure. And so I just won't mention it. I'll say, how is your wife. And you'll think, you know, it's familiar. We know each other. We're not in community. This is why we haven't realized the Christian community as described in the Bible. Verse 4, it says, you adulteresses, which I find to be sort of offensive. James uses really harsh language. As a husband longs for his wife's love and soul affection, self-seeking is God-denying. God is saying, I am your first love. I am to be the receiver 
of your days and your energy and your passion. And when you seek it in self, you're cheating on me. I would say that anything life-giving requires sacrifice. It starts with sacrifice, even. Then consider life itself. There's no life that has come into this world without a mother's sacrifice of some sort, laying down her physical priority for a child. If you're a parent, how does your child survive? You lay down your life and you seek their needs. You sustain them at, at your expense. My grandfather had 10 children and said every baby brings their own bread. And that was a really nice way for him to justify having 10 kids and, and figuring out the finances of it. But I never saw one of them bring their own bread, right? And all the pictures I saw, that's not how it works. God will provide, sure. But he often provides through your hard work and sacrifice. As a parent, you sustain them at your expense. Thomas Howard, in his book, The Splendor of the Ordinary, says that growing life always requires a death. That's uplifting, right? So helping our kids to learn to ride their bikes, take it to that level. And helping my children to learn to ride their bikes, and mainly watching my wife help our children to learn to ride their bikes, we experience the death of the enjoyment of a nice walk. The death of my comfort as we contort to hold the seat while they wobble around and crash into trees. The death of our joy and the relaxation of of that. It's gone. That dies so that they can do this other thing. They grow in life through a small death of ours. And this is where all life and growth comes from. When you lay down 10 minutes to serve someone else, your 10 minutes dies to see another person flourish. My children learn to read because of the death of my wife's 20 minutes at nap time or my 20 minutes in the evening. Our preference would be to have a drink on the patio or get ahead on housework or whatever. But for them to flourish, something of ours dies just a little. The same is true in larger community. Community flourishes when we lay down our agenda, when we're willing to give our lives for each other, even in some small way. clearest to see this in money, which is going to make everybody super comfortable. Right, the mission of Covenant Church to know Jesus and make him known. The mission here exists because some percentage of your income is dead to you. And you give it to breathe life into that mission. That's why this place exists. This is acutely uh, known to me. Yeah, the lights in the building are taken care of through offerings to the church and snacks for children that are they're eating right now and the ministry that happens out in the city. That's all, um, that's all funded through the church. But, but it's important, like we recognize there is no home office here. We're not a part of a denomination that, you know, they were getting checks out of Kansas City once a month that helps keep the lights on. We are the home office. When you consider that, You have to ask the other question, can you be part of a church community without giving your time or your talent or your treasure? If you don't serve it, and you don't use your gifts in it, and there's no finances put towards it, are you part of a community or a consumption? And that's not intended to hurt, and that's not 
intended to draw you into some uh, point of serving or giving? I have to ask myself these things. I say it's acutely known to me because this is where this gets awkward for me, is my family eats because the church is funded. Right? It's a really strange, humbling thing to know that, that we live here in our house with our stuff and our swim lessons and our dinner tonight is funded because we are in this together and you give. My dental bills are some percentage of the money coming out of your pockets. Like that is humbling. Because I don't have the money for the dental bills unless the money goes in the box or in online. And then, so my presence, my very existence in this community is reliant on this community. And the good news is our budget looks great. And you're doing well. And my kids have dental coverage and they're fine. And yet every time I think about it, I get a check from the church, I realize that we are inextricably linked and it is deeply humbling. It's weird to look the people who give you your salary in the eye every week. But it works. It works because community is understood in our souls, because somewhere within us, God has wired us up for this. It works because you understand that I exist to serve the community. I exist to walk through loss with you. I exist to deliver God's word to you. I I exist to fill up the baptismal at 5 a.m. this morning because I forgot to come in yesterday and do it. So that we can celebrate together as our children take steps of faith. That's why I'm here. You don't pay a pastor. You enter into a communal agreement that we're going to do this stuff together. And as I care for you, you'll care for me. And as I love your family, you love my family. That's community. And it's weird to talk about money, especially my salary, with you from the pulpit. But I couldn't think of a better picture. We're in community. We have an agreement that isn't signed document. It's a Holy Spirit-breathed thing that, that it just fit and we're family. And so we do this together. So my family got absorbed into this larger family. And it's a little less weird to cash the paycheck. Because when your dad gives you 20 bucks as you're heading out the door in high school, that's not weird. That's what families do. And that's what starts to happen when we share with each other. And so what would it look like if it wasn't a paid position, but it was actually our regular rhythm of life? That in our community groups, that it wasn't weird when somebody took care of someone else's bills. That it wasn't weird when someone's car broke down and, and someone uh, gave up their car for a week so that could be the loaner and you could save on the rental. What would it look like if, if someone was going out of town and was like, I'll watch your kids, I'll watch your dog, we'll house it for you, don't worry about that. And we wouldn't feel indebted to them like we need, like we would just feel like this is family, this is what we do. I don't pay my parents to watch my kids. They just do it because they love my kids. I don't pay Tim and Deb to watch my kids. They might wish I did. (laughs) But we're family. And they do it out of love for us, which is humbling. That word keeps coming back, humbling. So in the source of money, putting money in the black box on the wall or clicking the give button online is not an invitation to a financial traction. It's an inv- a transaction. It's an invitation to community. 
because your $1 dies when it goes in the box so that the community might flourish. When we comes before me, community begins to flourish. So what is the cause then? What's the cause of this hedone, this hedonism? Verse 6 says, God opposes the proud and favors the humble. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord or don't be proud. So it seems that pride is what gets in the way between us having true community. And that humility, whether we aim for it or it just happens to us, is really the the entrance way for any human being into true community. I'm going to run through these real fast. Jonathan Edwards said there are six marks of spiritual pride or the inverse of spiritual humility. So you do your own diagnostic. Number one, pride. When you're prideful, you're more aware of others' faults than your own. You can tell everybody else's faults, not totally sure what's wrong with you. You ever got asked an interview question? Tell me some of your great weaknesses, and you don't have any? Sometimes I think I work too hard. (laughs) That'll get them. It's not a flaw, right? Humility, we're more aware of our own faults than others. Pride, we have an air of contempt or disdain for others' faults. She's always late. As opposed to humility, has an air of mercy or grief. You know what? She's always late. I wish I could help in some way. I wish there was something we could do. Because that's really got to be a bummer for her. Number three, pride. You're quick to separate from someone who's criticized you or someone you have criticized. You don't want to be in the same room with that person. Humility says we stick with people even when it's difficult. Pride says we are dogmatic on every aspect of belief. That we are sure, that we are sure, that we are sure, and there cannot be any gray. Humility concedes that there is only one omniscient, and it is not me. Pride confronts in order to win, or avoids confrontation for for fear of controversy. Humility confronts only when necessary for the benefit of the other. Pride is unhappy and self-pitying. Life is never quite good enough, and I deserve better. Humility lives a life of undeserved blessing and is consistently surprised that so much is given. If you imagine pride versus humility, imagine them as two cups. The cup of pride is huge. It is cracked. It needs a constant inflow to be filled. Whereas the cup of humility is small and is secure, therefore it is easily satisfied. And each of us carries some version on the continuum of that. We are either walking around with a huge prideful heart that is cracked and is constant need of affirmation. There's a constant need of consideration from others to tell us that we are good enough. And if somebody should cross us, that's it for them. The opposite being humility, which is our cup is small and we recognize that very little, if any, of what we have or do or are blessed with has anything to do with our brilliance, but has everything to do with God's goodness. And there, the humble heart then lives in a constant state of overflow. What's easier to overflow, a giant cracked uh, cup or a tiny thimble? The thimble overflows first. And so when you run into somebody who has that overflow life, who's constantly giving, who's constantly sharing, who's constantly in your life asking, what do you, and you go, what is different about this person? I guarantee you, they're not prideful, but they're humble. And that humility is why their life overflows into so many others. Pride equals my life for me. Humility is my life for you. 
That's the difference. Jesus is the ultimate example of this. He says, my life for me? No. Jesus came in the ultimate my life for you moment. He gave up his power and his glory and his life. We look at that and we go, well, that's great. I can't do what he did, which is exactly why he came. In verse 6, it says he gives us even more grace. He lived out, verse 6, 7, and 8 of this passage. He gives more grace. He humbles himself. He's a baby born into poverty. Verse 7, he resisted the devil in the wilderness, and the devil fled. Verse 8, he drew near to God even when God did not draw near to him. My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? The things we couldn't even do in the passage are there because we are supposed to humble ourselves and recognize that Christ did them for us. Because how ironic would it be to read about pride versus humility and then gussy up our best pride and try to accomplish them? The text is there to humble us and say, you couldn't do it, so Christ did. He took on the penalty for my living. Jesus said, my life for you. And we're now included in that life. We're included in the community of believers. And life-transforming community results in community-transforming lives. So today, to finish being countercultural, just for a moment, I want to invite you to be part of a community not defined by consumption, but by the overflow of grace found only in Jesus. I want to invite you into a virtuous cycle, a community that grows your humility, because community will do that, as your humility then grows and benefits your community. So if you are not in the quiet of your own heart, in the quiet of your own soul, if you're sitting here going, you know what, I don't think we have that thing he describes. I don't know that we have a community. If you don't, we have options. Maybe you have options and you just have disengaged from it. Re-engage. If you go, you know what, we don't actually know people I don't know my neighbors. My sidewalk goes over to my driveway, not to my street. We have community groups. We would love to put every single person in here who wanted to be one in one. And they're easy. We gather, we share, we bless. There is no sign-up sheet for community groups on the table because you go to bgcovenant.org slash community, and there's like four questions. Like, what's your name and what night would you prefer to meet on? And we kind of go from there. And guess what? Whatever communities grow, whatever community group grows, there's going to be an inconvenience there because there's someone new and we've got to figure out how to make this extra kid work and what about the food situation and what night should we meet and how does this work? And that's the beauty of it because everyone else in the group will be humbled just a little bit in order to accommodate a new and then you're in and we're together and we keep riding together. Each and every one of us has to choose every morning whether or not we're going to be part of a community or in life for ourselves. We have to choose whether it is going to be my life for me or my life for all of you. And that is not a Sunday morning choice. That is an everyday choice. And so, as we pursue this mission to know Jesus and make him known, your hard soul work this week is figuring out where pride exists and rooting it out which is no fun. And where pride exists and confessing it to another, which is no fun. And then allowing humility to replace it. Because being admonished by another does what? Humbles us. Confessing our sins to another does what? Humbles us. 
and sharing all things as if they belong to each other does what? It humbles us. All of the marks of biblical community are designed to humble us. And so shall we not humble ourselves in advance, join in together, be about the mission, and live in such a way that everyone else on this planet would look and say, that's weird. And we would go, no, that's Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are 